It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Jeremy McDonald, CEO of Bonnie Plumbing, Electrical Heating and Air, where he and his team are on a mission to build the most trusted home services company in California. Prior to joining Bonnie, Jeremy worked as an entrepreneur in South Africa's rapidly evolving telecoms industry. And as a recent immigrant to California, Jeremy spends as much time as possible exploring the Golden State and enjoying its outdoor lifestyle with his wife and two boys. Jeremy holds an MBA from MIT Sloan School of Management, where he focused his studies on innovation and entrepreneurship. Jerry McDonald, welcome into the corner office. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Brent. Oh, it's great. Great to have you here. We, we spoke a couple of months ago and wonderful to kind of hear your story. You've got an amazing one, particularly given that, you know, growing up uh, overseas, as we would call it, from the States to Hyde and being involved in a couple of different industries and, and some transitions you've made. So really excited to hear all about that. But we always kind of like to start in the beginning and, you know, tell us a little bit about the early years. Uh, having grown up in South Africa, I'm sure you have a very different upbringing than most of our other American CEOs. So Tell us a little bit about that. Mom and dad, what they do, brothers and sisters, uh, and what part of the country in South Africa you came from. Yeah, I grew up with quite an unusual uh, background in that my father was a game ranger. So I grew up ah. for my early years on a, a game reserve Wow, cool. in KwaZulu-Natal. That was, that was pretty cool. Um, yeah. But when I was a young kid, we relocated to Cape Town. Um, my father uh, was an academic. He was a okay. biologist. And uh, very interesting to be surrounded by books and research and uh, a father who was very committed to research and the scientific process yeah, growing up. Yeah. My, my mother was a doctor who worked in rural communities and mm. with, in government service in, in right. South Africa. So very much mission-driven parents and right, um, right. grew up with an older brother and a younger brother. So the middle okay. of three very right. kind of secure upbringing and um, surrounded by friends, not only of my own, but of my brothers as well. Right. So really idyllic childhood, a lot of outdoor time, a lot of time in nature um, and at beaches. And it was pretty idyllic. I've heard wonderful things about Cape Town. I, I've not yet had a chance to visit your, your homeland, but uh, the pictures I've seen and the folks that have gone there, it's, it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and it really was a beautiful place to grow up. As a yeah. kid, I was completely unaware of apartheid <laughs> and yeah, the political right. situation. Yeah. As yeah. I 
crossed into my tweens and early teens, I became much more aware. Yeah. And it was quite shocking to to know more about the country of my upbringing mm. and to just see you know, inequality day in, day out. It, it, it was quite kind of jarring. Now, was apartheid uh, abolished before you left the country? Well, yeah. When I was about yeah. 10 years old, 10 years old. Yeah. Nelson Mandela was released from wow. prison on Robben yeah. Island. And I remember watching that on TV with my parents. And, you know, we're from a pretty liberal family and we were really excited to, to see that. Yeah, it's a huge right. significant event. Yeah. And apartheid was dismantled during the course of my teens, I would say, teens, my, yeah. my early years. So that's kind of when you became more aware of it, right? Of the inequities yeah. and so forth. Yeah. 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 Awesome. And um, uh, so all that time in Cape Town then uh, until you went to university or, or public schools, private schools, tell us a little bit about that early education. Yeah. So I went to a, a public school, a school called right. Rondebosch, which is a neighborhood I grew up in. Um, once again, very stable, the kind of school we walked to school or rode to school. Uh, it does look a little bit like one of those British schools, we all wore the shorts and the, the long uniforms. socks, the uniforms. Yeah. <laughs> we all looked like ACDC um, up on stage, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I love it. And um, good student in school? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I was a, I was a pretty good student in school. I, I had a mixed report card. I was a mix between A's and B's. My parents never really put me under tremendous pressure. Uh, I had some areas where I, I did well and others where I was a little more relaxed. But our, our focus was very much uh, on swimming. I grew up in a family mm -hmm. of swimmers. Oh, nice. nice. So we would and spend a lot of time uh, swimming up and down pools. When I grew yeah. up, I, I guess it was a coping mechanism for my parents as well. They, they knew mm -hmm. where to drop their three energetic sons each day. <laughs> Mostly pool swimming or, or ocean swimming there as well in, in Cape Town? Mostly pool swimming, but I, yeah. I was also a surf lifeguard, a, oh. a volunteer surf lifeguard in my teens and early 20s, so a lot of sea swimming as well. I, I immediately think of this wonderful documentary. I'm sure you've heard of it, if not seen it, you know, My Octopus Teacher. Yeah, it was uh, an amazing, was, amazing documentary yeah. and very much the beaches I grew up. I was going to say that that was Cape Town, in, right? Yeah, that Quite was Cape by. Town. Yeah. I, I would say that I grew up um, using wetsuits and a huge respect for the guy right. <laughs> swimming in his speedo each know, day, but yes, exactly, it's pretty brave all, all year round. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, amazing, amazing, and beautiful. Got to just be beautiful beaches there and everything else. So, other than swimming, any other activities that you pursued? Uh, any, you know, specific sports, music, theater, debate, anything like that? I played a little bit of water polo and yeah. a bit of a bit of rugby. Pretty bad rugby, but that um, I was very. I enjoyed it a lot and had a lot of friends who played rugby as well. Right, right. Any entrepreneurial things growing up? I mean, I know you've become an entrepreneur and certainly uh, did that in the telecoms industry and, and of course, where you're working today. But uh, did that kind of strike uh, early in your years? You know, in, in, in the U.S., it's always the ubiquitous paper route or selling Christmas cards at that time of year and other types of things. Were, was that a thing when you grew up in South Africa? I grew up with parents who weren't really business people so yeah. I, I started to get exposed to some of that thinking at university when I okay. when I enrolled in a business course right uh, a business degree yeah um, I did start my own swimming team in college in about oh. second second year college cool. um, 
and yeah, I ran that and that was a really nice profit center and made sure that I always had a pretty decent amount of, of money for a student <laughs> and never went too short. Yeah. Awesome. So n- nothing though, I mean, were there jobs in high school and junior high or is it, was it more the environment that you kind of focused on school and did a couple of sports things and, you know, you, you didn't have to have that extra, you know, spending money in your pocket, so to speak. Yeah. To be honest, I didn't grow up with a lot of spending money and yeah. I never really had that entrepreneurial focus as a, yeah. as a high schooler, as a but high I spent schooler. a lot of time uh, swimming um, and just generally outdoors, but but yeah, didn't have a lot of spending money as a kid. Right, right. And then uh, from an educational standpoint, uh, you went to Stellenbosch, Stellenbosch, right? If I get pronounced right, right? University. Yeah. Um, was it kind of assumed that you'd go to college? I mean, your mother was a doctor, obviously. Your, your father, as you said, was an academic. Was it assumed that, that all of you boys would go on to university? I think it was assumed that we'd all yeah. go on to university. I remember as a kid going to the university of Cape town where my father was a university Mm. professor and just loving the science faculty. Mm. Um, They had these wide corridors with, with showers in the corridors in case um, any, any students or professors got burnt by acids during lab experiments. We used to play up and down those corridors and race the roller chairs up and down as, as little kids. <laughs> so I, I, I grew up loving the university environment. Mm. Yeah. So just, it was assumed that's how it would go on. And you yeah. chose Stellenbosch. Was it because of the field of study there? Or um, you know, it was probably a couple of different choices. Is, is it private and public universities in South Africa like it is in the U.S.? There are mostly uh, public universities. Most public. There are some private universities, but but for the most part, they are public universities. So Stellenbosch was a public university. Yeah. My family moved to Stellenbosch in oh, my okay. senior in my senior year of high school. Got it. Got it. It was always assumed I'd go to the University of Cape Town, which is yeah. probably the better known university overseas. Mm. Um, but when we got to Stellenbosch, it looked like a really nice uh, college town. Right. Where, where the town is about 50% university students and then also the center of South Africa's wine industry. So oh, a really nice. nice overlap there. Yeah, yeah. And, and was your dad transferred to that university? Is that what, what prompted the move? My father actually made a move from acad- academia to working for a not-for-profit. So he okay. worked for the Worldwide Fund for Nature. And oh, in my awesome. senior year of, of high school, he was promoted to CEO and we then decided to relocate. Uh, my parents decided to relocate the family to Stellenbosch. That's where the organization was based. Yes. Or, yeah, yes. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. But was that tough for you, particularly given that you had your heart set on going to University of Cape Town? It wasn't really that tough yeah. because it was. Yeah. it's only about a 45-minute drive from Cape Town. So I managed uh-huh. to keep in you know in good contact with all of my friends, friends in high school yeah, my right. my parents bought an apartment in cape town when we left so we finished out our high school in cape town as well yeah yeah awesome awesome cool great and then uh, what was that first job did you go to work right away i know you w- went on to the states later to for your master's degree but i think you also took some courses um you know, at uh, uh, a couple of different locations. What, tell us about what happened immediately following. Did you go right into the workforce? Well, immediately following my graduation from university in South Africa, I actually came to the, came to the States on a ah. 
short-term work visa to work at a, at a ski resort uh, in nice. Vermont. That was really fun. <laughs> so did that for about four or five months and uh, worked at Smuggler's Notch, a, a little resort up in, in Vermont, which was a lot of fun. Wow. Now, did they arrange a visa for you? How, how did you uh, finagle that? <laughs> yeah, you can actually apply for these short-term student visas. I think nice. they call them J-1 visas. And that was right, my right. first real exposure to the United States. And yeah. I just kind of I loved it. Yeah. And after that, I, I spent about three years in the UK working, yeah. um, okay. working in office jobs. So my first real job was in asset management and over time I moved into investment banking and worked for various institutions but finished up in London working for UBS. Okay, got it, got it. And um, did you have people responsibility early on? When, when did you first start managing uh, people and leading people? So the first time I really had people responsibility was on moving back to South Africa after mm. working in banking. Um, I moved back to South Africa after about three years working in the UK. My mom got pretty ill with, with cancer. Ooh. And Ooh, at that time, I wasn't planning to stay in the UK, but I was spending a few years out there. Right. Uh, so that preempted a move back to South Africa where I connected with various um, job opportunities, talked to people in, in banking, Right. And I presumed I would get into banking, but mm. was introduced to an entrepreneur who just started a voiceover IP business. I was intrigued oh. and right. we really hit it off. And, and yeah, I started working for that business at about 25. So this is kind of the early 2000s, kind of in yeah, the, it was in, mid, in the mid 2000s, like yeah, yeah, 2005. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And so that was the first time I had people responsibility was working right. in a startup environment yeah. where, where I basically headed up the business side. I became the COO. The CEO was very technically focused and had a few developers that he worked with. He was developing a voiceover IP product. Right. And I started building out the, the business side of the company and referring back to my old university textbooks and yeah. working out how to run uh, financial statements and that kind of thing. It was very interesting. This was ECN, right? The Electronic Communications Network? Yeah. So e ECN was yeah. this telecom startup in South Africa that we grew from zero to about 100 people over wow. about a five-year timeline and built about $50 million of recurring revenue. Nice. It was an nice. awesome uh, service business with a lot of recurring revenue. We targeted um, business customers so we spent a lot of time in Johannesburg selling our solution um, and our services, voice services, in competition with our large fixed line operator, our equivalent yeah. to AT&T. Right. So is it VoIP services primarily or, or yeah. internet yeah. as well? Okay. Yeah, VoIP. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So some of those early leadership lessons, show us a little bit, Jeremy. What were, what were some of those things, particularly coming into a startup environment? You know, what, what do you think made... Uh, you know, what did you learn more importantly and what, what was kind of the, you know, driving the success behind it? I think one of the things I learned was the importance of building a great company culture. Mm. We, we definitely made some missteps early on and we lost some great people. And over time, we couldn't really pay people 
better than our competitors and we were up against some very big telcos in the market with much deeper pockets. Yeah. We couldn't beat them necessarily on pay, but we could beat um, our competitors on work environments. So we, mm. over the years, built an awesome um, office in Rosebank in Johannesburg, um, built a really nice uh, culture, attracted people who were competitive, who, who wanted to win. And it was a lot of fun. It was, it was fun being at the core of, of, of building out this, this team. Um, but I definitely saw some, I, I also learned some things not to do. I, I saw some examples of pretty poor customer service early on. Mm. And, um, that really stuck with me and, and our mm. only way to really win business was to provide, ex, you know, exceptionally good customer service. Right. So right. we tended to focus on that. Um, when we hired people, we looked for people who, were good communicators and were committed to providing good experience to customers. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Now, did you sell that business? I know you went on to work for another uh, telecoms provider before you left South Africa, but tell me about that, about that transition from ECN. Yeah. So at ECN, I got sweat equity early on and um, was one of the directors on the board. And so I got a lot of exposure to um, pretty senior business people who, who also joined our board and um, we built that company up and sold it in about 2011 to Roynet, which is a large listed electronics firm in uh, South Africa. And that was great. It was great getting to a successful exit. And there were a number of people, a number of shareholders who made very decent returns on the right. business. I think in hindsight, uh, a lesson learned was don't be in a hurry to sell, to mm. exit. I think we yeah. probably exited about three years too early. Oh, so. really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes that's the case. I, I have to say, of, of all the startups I certainly worked with, both on a recruiting and investment standpoint, usually they waited too long. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, <laughs> I always I, refer I, them as, as the $2 guys, the $20 guys, or the $200 per share guys, right? Yeah. And, and you always wanted to be, you know, 20 if you could make it, but 200 was always a hard time to leave because you always thought, well, I could go to 400, right? What do you do? <laughs> yeah. Once once we'd sold the business, I got a management contract with a listed company and got, got to see inside the business for a few more years. Yeah. And yeah. we made tremendous progress. A lot of the progress we made was due to um, regulatory change. So interconnect rates came down between operators and that just boosted our, our bottom line. Our cost right. of sales dramatically dropped off. And uh, yeah, from a timing perspective, it was kind of unfortunate. But I hear you, getting to an exit is the key thing. So that, yeah. you know, that yeah. was a great outcome for me and for my family, right. for sure. Right, yeah, no, no regrets looking back. So um, was it then after uh, you left Nashua? Is it Na Nashua, right? Is that how it's pronounced? Communication? Yeah, Na Nashua. I actually Nashua. named after Nashua in, I think it's in New Hampshire, which is right. a town in New Hampshire. Yeah, um, yeah. It was a telecoms business owned by Roynet. It was effectively their telecoms um, division. Nice. So worked as part of that for two years after sale, completed my management contract. And then together with my wife, we decided to move our growing young family down to Cape Town where we had both grown up. Yeah, and what year was that? Family. Yeah. 
and then from there, not so long thereafter, um, became a Sloan Fellow. Now, t tell us kind of how that journey, you know, um, developed, given the fact that, you know, again, big move uh, over to the U.S., uh, going back and, and pursuing, uh, you know, a, a further degree at MIT. I think what happened, the prompt for that was I moved to Cape Town in 2013 with my family, started a different telecoms business with a mm. former partner, Mike Rabbits, um, who I learned a huge amount from. Uh, he was a very experienced um, sales uh, salesman and entrepreneur. We, we built a fiber internet um, ISP and really the business-to-business -business arm for an existing internet service provider. Mm. So we built that business up over about five years in Cape Town. And it got to a point with that company where it evolved into more of a lifestyle business. Mm. And uh, the fiber rush in South Africa, the conversion from copper to fiber lines had roughly run its course. And there was not a lot of new business to pick up. So in about 2017, 2018, I started to get itchy feet. Mm. And my wife and I talked and we went back to what were our kind of dreams and aspirations in our in our 20s at this stage we were in our mid-30s and i'd always wanted to do an mba in the states it is something yeah. that i wanted to do earlier on in my career and i found myself you know first you know caring for a mom who was fairly ill yeah. in south africa and wanting to be around for that and then being in the midst of a startup and then having a growing family you know two two young boys who were born in succession life kind of got in the way and so we went back to the drawing board and said what what did we really want to do and i'd always wanted to pursue this mba so i looked into various programs and found the sloan fellows mba um, which is a great mid-career program offered at mit sloan um, and what i really liked about it is it was fairly quick so you would do the whole course in one year you basically worked through the summer vacation and that became another semester um and that it was full time so you would be in class and build what i figured would be deeper connections with classmates and that mm. definitely um turned out to be to be the case yeah. And what's the fellows program? Was that just the name of it or were your, was there a specific you know, scholarship that was involved with it? Tell us a little bit about that. So it is the name of the program yeah. and it is the, uh, the one-year full-time executive MBA offered at, right. at MIT Sloan. Right. As Stanford right. University offers a similar program called, yeah. uh, it's branded the MSX, right. which is once again a mid-career program that looks a yeah. lot like an MBA. Um, and there's another Sloan Fellows program offered at London Business School, um, also mid-career, full-time, in about right. one year. Right. You know, I, I see so often in my um, executive recruiting, retained recruiting work that, you know, people take MBAs and then they typically do pivots. Yeah. You did a pretty big pivot coming out of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can say that. Um, I, I remember talking to, to one of my, uh, I think, strategy professors, and, and he said, um, typically my mid-career students look to make one to two pivots. So they look to change geography, they look to change industry, or they look to change role. Right. And I was looking to change all three. 
Oh, three. Well, and then, and then location as well, right? I yeah. Mean, technically. Yeah. Not, I mean, not only just left to the States, but you moved from one coast to the other. So yeah. tell us more about that. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. When I got to MIT, my, my thinking was I would look to join a startup associated with the university. Right. Once I got once I got in and started looking at a lot of the startups around the university um, and the risk involved, you know, I'd moved to the States with my wife and with two young kids, a boy of seven, uh, Callum, and my younger, Harry. Um, mm. And my wife, Bridget, and I, we had a few conversations and I looked at, I looked at the option of working as an entrepreneur and just thought the risk was really high, uh, mm. especially, you know, having kids that really changed the equation. So started talking to people in private equity where I figured mm. you would still get great leadership opportunities and opportunities to quickly get a C-suite role and connected with an excellent group, um, Alpine investors based out of uh, San Francisco and got connected to this opportunity that I'm in today at uh, Bonnie, Bonnie, um, which is a home services business right. based in Sacramento, California. Yeah. Yeah. And when, what was the attraction to that particular business? I mean, I, I, I know, you know, from our work with Alpine and both our recruiting side, as well as having some other, the other, other guests, they've got a number of different businesses. How did that, conversation go? Did they kind of show you the portfolio? Was there a specific need that they had and saw you as a good fit for it? And, and how did you make that choice? Well, Bonnie's actually got an interesting history in that it's not part of Alpine, but it's privately mm. owned by one of the partners at Alpine. Right, right. It's a business that is about a 40-year-old home services company in Sacramento. Alpine has owned it for about 14 years. At that stage, it had owned it for about 10 years. Right. Um, the company had sat off to one side. It was originally meant to be part of a bigger plumbing and HVAC roll-up, a business called Wrench Group. But in 2015, they decided to pull it from that particular deal, and it had literally sat to one side w without a ton of focus. Hmm. Um so when I arrived in 2018, it was more of a kind of a turnaround opportunity. Right. I think the, the appeal from my perspective, leaving school, um, home services felt like a pretty safe bet in terms of the business being recession resistant. I was pretty concerned about a recession yeah. um, in about 2018. I, of course, had no idea of, of what the pandemic would do to business. <laughs> right. Um, right. But I wanted to work in a business that was recession resistant. Mm. I think another appeal was was California. We, we'd loved mm. living in Boston, but we'd found the winter particularly brutal. <laughs> yes. it was As they just not, got yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it, it was not weather that we were used to. It was exciting, and I mean, Boston is an awesome city. Yeah. But yeah. we found the uh, climate of California really appealing. I it's also, very similar to very similar to South Africa, particularly the Cape Town area. Think, oh, it's right? very, very similar. And yeah, I think the yeah. Central Valley looked particularly mm. good to us as um, immigrants coming in because it's got a much cheaper cost of living than the cities on the coast. Right. So, right. you know, we went and visited Sacramento um, during the uh, spring semester of, of, of my MBA year. Right. And 
we immediately loved the town, loved loved the rivers that flowed through it, and yeah, yeah. the all the access that you have to Mountains, you know, Tahoe beach, and yeah, Winelands yeah. and beach, and right. so we thought this so would be a really nice place to raise kids yeah. and a pretty stable industry and an exciting prospect. You know, another thing I looked at is I'd worked most of my career at that point about fifteen years as a telco um, right. entrepreneur, and I was worried about only having telecoms experience and I wanted to broaden my set mm. of opportunities of perhaps yeah. you know down the line so it was it was really nice moving into a new industry and, yeah. and learning yeah. learning a whole new um, a whole new industry kind of right. mid-career that was a lot of fun and is is Bonnie's service area only Sacramento are you on an expansion phase taking a look at opportunities for different, you know, geographic reasons. Tell us a little bit about the, the mission of the company. Yeah, so so Bonnie is focused on Sacramento and surrounds, so probably about a 30-mile radius around Sacramento. Right. Right. We're in the process of building out a Northern California-focused yeah. uh, home services business. Right. So we're expanding out. Uh, we've recently bought businesses in the East Bay Um in Concord and in yeah. the North Bay in Marin, and yeah. we're continuing to expand. So we're looking to build a, a regional home services business. We are typically buying businesses and retaining the brand. We're looking to partner with companies that have extremely strong brands mm. in local areas, but yeah. then provide um, a lot of best practice and some shared services from Sacramento. Not unlike Alpine's investment in the managed services area, right? Yeah, Where correct. You guys do the IT type of work. So it's the same sort of individual businessman, family-owned businesses that have started that up, and then you kind of take them under your wing. Is that kind of how that works? Sure. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. much, very much how it works. So typically, yeah, we yeah. would look to a lot of the, the home services businesses we've been looking at have founders who are nearing retirement. Right, right. And... Um, some of them have decent succession plans in place. Many do not. Mm. So where they don't, we're able to bring managers into those um, businesses. And one of our key projects now is is building out a general manager and training uh, program here mm. where we can train up uh, leaders within the business to deploy nice. to uh, acquisitions. Um, yeah. Yeah. Have you found that your leadership style has had to change given the sector, you know, change that you've worked and also, you know, due to the cultural nature of, of working here versus your previous experience, obviously, both in the, the UK as well as South Africa? Yeah, I think that my leadership style has changed. I think one thing I've learned coming to the, the States, um, I, I think I've learned a lot more hu humility. Mm. Um I think in South Africa, a lot of the businesses I was involved in quickly became successes. And that was my experience of not having too many setbacks. Um, the second business was a bit, a bit of a, a slower business, but coming to the US and really needing to learn from zero, um, starting with a, a blank piece of paper in, in the home services industry, I had to spend about a year on the job just learning about the industry, um, how it works. Um, and I, I, I think that I've really adopted that kind of learning mindset here. 
I've done a lot more uh, listening. Um, I, I've learned to, as often as possible, speak last and really lean on experience around the table. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. Early on, myself and some of the other managers that we hired would kind of, we would make decisions that didn't always have the buy-in from the team. And right, I, th I think right. I've learned to listen a lot more to the people yeah. around the table who know this yeah. industry really well. Right, right. Yeah, good. Love that. Love that. And how would you best describe the, the company culture you're trying to build? Because, you know, that sometimes that's difficult when you're doing a roll-up looking at different folks that, you know, may have a little bit of a different strategy. You know, you talked about, you know, culture earlier on being so important, particularly at ECN. You know, what is that company culture? What do you think is unique about it? And, and how do you maintain that, particularly as you're growing so fast and bringing in these, uh, you know, these new uh, owners, I guess, in many ways, right, as they, as they uh, join your team? I, th I think a place we start is, is certainly hu humility uh, whenever we go into, into a business. Um, yeah. We have a lot to learn from not only the, the managers in the business, but also the employees. So we try and listen a lot and, and try and learn what makes those particular businesses special. Um, right. And we try and retain as much of their kind of secret sauce as possible. Um, what I saw at Bonnie, Bonnie is, you know, over my time has transitioned from being a smaller business with, you know, 100-ish team members to a bigger company with about 250 team members. Wow. Um, and as you scale up, you lose some of the original kind of culture of the business. I think we were very much a, a kind of in mom and pop shop mode and small small company mode. Right. And right. as we scale up, we've we've had to really define what our values are, and we we settled around around four values. I think key to building the values is it was a very um, inclusive process. We got a lot of feedback from employees and from managers in the business, but we really settled on four key values, service, trust, accountability, and respect. Mm. And we're, we're trying to build the most trusted home services firm in California. That's our current, yeah. our current vision. Yes. Um, and, it's one thing to put those words on the wall, which is something yeah. we have done, <laughs> right, but, right. but trying to embed those values into the yeah. business, I think is, is a harder challenge. So that's one that, you know, we try, we try to deal with every day. Um, yeah. If we look at our four key values, our, our current initiative is to really focus on one value per quarter and have a lot of discourse about that key value with our with our technical teams um and with our wider company at all hands meetings and really focus on employee stories that espouse that value right right cool yeah cool you mentioned humility being an important aspect of what you look for what, what are some of the other things you look for when you're you know ready to invest and hire people into the company so when we're looking to hire managers, um, we're clearly looking for things like track record. Um, we're looking for people who've done it or, or done what we're looking to do. We, we were very successful in, in hiring a key manager um, 
who had been through a similar kind of growth curve with another home services firm. So where we can, we look for people who've who've had experience with um, growing companies in the home services space. I think you face a unique set of challenge challenges in a space uh, like home services where you're talking about plumbing, uh, HVAC services, and right. kind of electrical work. One of the key issues we face is... is um, hiring and training talent. So we'll, we, we typically look for people who have good networks, but also people who are liked and respected. Um, it's a hard thing to gauge in interviews, but we really look for, for EQ. Um, yeah. yeah, people who can communicate well and people who, when you go and check references, they've got very warm references from people they've right. worked with. Right. Do you use assessments at all in trying to get at that EQ, EI? Part of it. We're we're not okay. very assessment driven at this stage, yeah. Um, but yeah, we do standardized job specs. We do have a standardized um, uh, interview template and those kinds of things. But we haven't yet lent too hard into uh, assessments, and that that right. that could be a next step. Good idea. Yeah, yeah. Hey, happy to, <laughs> happy to have another conversation about that. I only ask. It's it's interesting. We're doing uh, four major plant manager searches at the moment in the president of manufacturing is a $1.5 billion private equity company said, you know, we wow. really need people with strong EQEI. Yeah. Because they, they, they wrote, they, it's very similar, brought a company and just found that the folks that were running it and uh, we've actually put some assessments in place. We're getting some good early results, but it's a, uh, it's a hard thing to get to, as you said, an interview process. And, and sometimes we found that those psychographic assessments can be extremely beneficial and, and just providing more depth, particularly if you've got some you know, specific areas you want to delve into behavior, motivations and things like yeah, that. Yeah. I'd love, I'd love to chat. I'd love to chat to you about that. We'll have that. a separate conversation about it. I, Look forward to that. <laughs> I will say it's, it sparked another thought on this topic. Something yeah. we have seen is that great managers attract great employees. Yeah. And great employees attract other great employees. Right. So there right. is this virtuous cycle to getting yeah. your talent right. Um, we also try and build out a culture here that that gives our employees um, some decent work-life balance. Mm. You know, I, I really encourage my team members to take vacation. Um, mm. I certainly lead from the front and take a lot of vacation myself. <laughs> um, but I want to create... A, an environment where people are able to get home, you know, to their families, spend mm. time with their kids. We have a lot of employees and managers who have young kids. Um, we've we've looked at. We've also looked at how do we get our technicians home earlier? How do we give yeah. them more work life balance? Of life. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, we've been very successful in getting a lot of our install teams and our service teams home earlier. Mm. Um, we've, we've ensured that our technicians aren't running too many calls each day that they can really provide quality service to our customers right. and they're not exhausted at the end of the day. We've eliminated a lot of weekend work from our mm. schedules. Mm. Um, we've pushed adherence, you know, and, and, and we have fewer holidays which we work on but we do balance that with knowing that we have customers mm -hmm. who need us um right. but we've reduced our schedules on a lot a lot of the main yeah. kind of vacation days and holidays 
and giving yeah. people balance is something so important, particularly following the pandemic and you know all that we've been through and the rigors of figuring out how we you know rework. I would like to say one other key yeah. thing we've focused in on here is we've really focused in on training and building mm. a training yeah. culture. Yeah. The the year I arrived, twenty nineteen, um, the business was spending very little on training. We've we've multiplied our training budget by about twenty over the last um over the last three and a half years right. we've invested right. a lot of time and effort in training i mean it's a major um line item in um in our operating expenses yeah. Yeah. but we don't necessarily see it as an expense we see it as a huge sure. investment, investment. Yeah. yeah in yeah. in building our people building their earning capacity right. uh, building their skill set to service customers better and we see this virtuous cycle in kind of retaining more talent. So right. training has been a huge focus and yeah. it's really helped us move the needle on retention and on uh, staff motivation as well. Awesome. Jeremy, you've been very, very generous with your time and we're, we're just about out of it. But we always ask one last question to all our guests and that's, you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone that maybe has their eyes set on their own corner office someday or like yourself, you know, wants to be an entrepreneur and, and, and be successful. I think my, my easy advice there is take a long view. Building mm. value takes time. That's a lesson I really learned from, from Mike, a former uh, partner of mine, is take a long view and invest mm. the time because progress can take years Right. But the impact that you know you can have in a year is relatively limited, but the impact you can have over ten is enormous. So so right. be patient, um, set your goals, follow your goals. Mm. And then maybe finally, I think my story probably tells tells the story fairly well, but progress doesn't necessarily look like a straight line. <laughs> right, right. You're, you're going to have setbacks and you're going yeah. to have moments when you doubt your course and your path, but just keep the faith and keep going Yeah, keep because going. it's, it's incredible what you can achieve with, with the right mindset. It's not always about the destination. It's also about the journey for yeah. sure. <laughs> well, Jerry McDonald, Chief Executive Officer of Bonnie, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you very much, Brent. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.